Welcome to the Nursing Home 411 podcast. I'm your host, Eric Goldwine, and I'm going to start off today's episode by reading an excerpt from an investigative report written by our upcoming guest, journalist Katie Engelhart. The story is about the COVID outbreak at the Life Care Center of Kirkland and what it reveals about the systemic issues in long-term care. The following is from the California Sunday Magazine story, What Happened in Room 10. In retrospect, almost everyone would agree the nursing home should have canceled the Mardi Gras party, which was held the day after Mardi Gras on February 26th. It was Ash Wednesday, and a man from a nearby parish had come by in the morning to mark some of the residents' foreheads. Also that morning, Life Care's infection prevention nurse, in consultation with its medical director, had decided that it was probably time to declare a respiratory outbreak. Administrators sent a memo out to staff asking them to scrub down the common spaces and close the dining rooms because of all of the residents who were getting sick. But then the jazz band arrived. The party went ahead. Nursing aides hung ribbons on the walls, and the chef made a king cake with green and yellow and purple food dye. There were Cajun sausages and cups of Sprite. There were jester hats and plastic beads. The residents, as one party-goer recalled, sat wheelchair to wheelchair. Some sang along to the music. Others were a bit out of it. They nodded off or spilled their drinks. Aides wove through the crowd, tidying people up. Some of them wore masks, but some didn't. Twyla always went to the parties. Because of her dementia, she had forgotten how to like a lot of things, but she still liked music. When she heard it, she swayed in her wheelchair. Helen did not like parties, and she stayed in the room. She was never social at the nursing home, never one to join in or clap along. For some people... The life care parties could be a bit hammy. The costumes, the playlists, the syrupy, exaggerated way that everyone seemed to speak to the residents. Are you having fun? But on that day, there was something else. Helen told her daughter that a caregiver had come into her room and warned her not to attend. Stay in your room, Helen, she said. People are sick. After the break, we'll speak with Katie Engelhart, the author of the story. And here is our music by Silverman Sound Studios. Hi, Katie. It's so great to have you on the Nursing Home 411 podcast. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Since March, we've been hearing about the Life Care Center of Kirkland, uh, the Seattle nursing home known as the epicenter of the U.S. coronavirus outbreak. And a couple months ago, I stumbled upon an incredible investigative piece in California Sunday that focused on the residents at Life Care Center and also used those residents to tell a mar- much larger story about the root causes of the issues in the nursing home industry. And I read the piece and I thought I need to get Katie on the podcast. Mm-hmm. So that's why you're here. Thank you. So the, the piece is called What Happened in Room 10. Can you tell us what happened in Room 10? Yeah. So I think, you know, to start, I remember in the early weeks and months of, of the pandemic, the Life Care Center of Kirkland, Washington really dominated the news cycle. It was the first institution in the United States to be hit 
with COVID. So that at one point early on, um, of the United States nine cases, seven of them were tied to the nursing home. So, you know, I'd watched these news stories about Kirkland. I'd seen the horrifying images of residents being um, covered with sheets and, and, and taken on stretchers to paramedics wait, waiting in a large parking lot. Um, and the story was really striking to me, but, um, you know, I wasn't reporting on it. I, I sort of let the news pass. Uh, and then I got a call from California Sunday. And they were interested in me digging in. Uh, so as a journalist, what was really important to me early on was to try to tell the story from the perspective of residents inside the home. I think that older adults in the United States tend to be written about um, as subjects, but not really understood or, or written from the perspective of. So that was something I knew I really wanted to do. Um, I wanted a story that uh, explained what had happened at the nursing home more broadly, but also just really introduced readers to a few of the people who lived there in all of their complexity. Um, again, as a, as a journalist, I think that older adults tend to be written in a very sort of cliched and hackneyed way. You know, you'll see a story about a cantankerous little old lady or a sweet little old lady, but not just sort of rich, interesting, multifaceted people. Um, so yeah, so the story that I ended up telling was about two women uh, who I call, one, one who I call Helen, that's a pseudonym, and the other named Twyla, who lived together in room 10 of the Life Care Center of Kirkland. They lived in side-by-side -side beds, beds that were no more than 10 feet, 10 feet apart for over a year. And they experienced this outbreak very differently as did their, their families. Twyla ended up dying of COVID. She was one of the nursing home's first COVID deaths. Her 98-year-old roommate, Helen, ended up surviving. And in the weeks and months since, Twyla's daughter has decided to sue the nursing home in the belief that the nursing home was made mistakes that are responsible for her mother's death. And Helen's daughter has remained supportive of the nursing home, believing that staff and residents there did everything they could. So the piece really starts with this divergence um, around this bigger question of who is to blame for the deaths of the life care center. And it, it kind of takes it from there. So we're looking at the whole outbreak through the perspective of these two women. Right. And how did you go about finding those two? I'm sure you talked to, to dozens, um, uh, probably more uh, families, people associated with, with the facility. How did you, how did you decide or how did you identify those two particular women? Yeah. This is really hard. I mean, normally for a story of this length, it's a 16,000 word piece. I mean, it's, it's a pretty meaty investigation. Normally I would be there on the ground kind of meeting people and seeing what things looked like, uh, but I wasn't able to do that. The nursing home was and is um, mostly under lockdown. So I just started, you know, getting in touch with family members whose names had been in the press. And it was really one of those things where one interview led to the other. I ended up speaking to about 24 life care residents, family members, and staff members. That included uh, people who worked as licensed practical nurses all the way up to you know high-level administrators. It included some residents who were still living in the nursing home. Um, and so I really got this whole range of perspectives. I didn't know what the story would be at the beginning beyond that it would be about the nursing home, but 
um, you know, I started to notice patterns. I got a little uh, floor map, a kind of architectural map of the nursing home and started putting residents' names down in different rooms and seeing what had happened where. And, and that's really where the story came from. But it wasn't easy. And keep in mind, too, you know, the nursing home is being sued. And so administrators were not terribly cooperative. Right. Right. And I would uh, imagine that that residents and families might fear retaliation. Uh, staff member, uh, staff members are in this vulnerable position. So I imagine there's this reluctance to speak to uh, a reporter. Yeah, especially since, you know, a nursing home is a home, obviously, and a lot of the residents and their families feel attached um, to the staff who work there, especially to the nursing aides who are really in and out of those rooms all day long. And so while they might blame the, the larger company for certain decisions, for instance, not to um, kind of keep the nursing home stocked with certain kinds of supplies, they don't want to get the staff in trouble. They feel sorry for the staff. They feel that the staff members are really victimized along the way. And so, yeah, there was certainly all sorts of complicated reluctance. Mm-hmm. So what I really appreciated about uh, about this report is that it both told a compelling story, it put a face on, or several faces on, on this, and it also carefully explained the macro issues at play, uh, these complex things, private equity and real estate, uh, ageism, Medicare and Medicaid, uh, the federal government's response. How did those larger larger structural factors play into the outcomes uh, at Kirkland? How did they play into the outcomes of those two residents that you focused on? Yeah. I mean, so yeah, at the beginning, I really had this question of my, in mind of who is to blame or what is to blame for the deaths that happened? I think there's a tendency to describe, and in, in, I've seen it in, in a lot of news articles, a tendency to describe deaths in nursing homes as sort of inevitable. You know, these people are very old and they're very sick. And so of course they would get COVID. And of course, if they get COVID, they will die of it. And I just didn't think that could be true. Um, these are healthcare institutions. I didn't think it was inevitable that outbreaks would happen inside them and that residents would die under the care of uh, professional staff members. So I had this this question of, you know, is life care itself to blame? Or is this just the virus's way? Is it just the virus? And, and, and once the nursing home was infected, there was nothing that could be done. But I realized early on that to properly explore this question of blame, I had to go way back. So I couldn't even just stay with the nursing home. I had to go to the larger company and to some of these broader macro factors, as you say. So Life Care Center of Kirkland, Washington is part of the Life Care Centers of America, which is the largest privately owned nursing home company in the US. 70% of nursing homes are for profit. This is one of them. And what I saw right from the beginning is this incredible tension between the role and responsibility of a private company with its own income and, and ways of doing things and the public health infrastructure that exists or sometimes doesn't exist around the nursing home. And so really the piece gets at some of that in in some very specific ways and some broader ways. I can give you a a really specific example. That had to do with the doctor at the nursing home. What I knew was that on March 2nd, very early on, very early days of the outbreak, 
the doctor started experiencing symptoms and had to leave the nursing home. So what I learned as I, picked, as I picked this apart was that this doctor was not only the medical director of the nursing home overseeing all of the healthcare um, that happened there, but he was also the primary care physician for almost every single resident, which meant that effectively he was overseeing himself and uh, didn't really have anyone else to lean on in a situation like this where he was unable to be present. So, and that's something that you know, states and counties and the federal government allows. They allow for this sort of setup. It's very common. So in, in the case of the life care center, they didn't have a backup doctor who could be called. But as I was digging, I also learned that, you know, at the height of the outbreak, there were three days where the facility had no doctor and officials at the county, state and federal level knew it. They knew that his nursing home residents were literally dying inside this building. There was no physician available on hand to take care of residents or to assess them for possible transfer to the hospital. And so this seems like a failure on multiple fronts. It was a regulatory failure that didn't require the nursing home to have any kind of backup or uh, medical support or kind of check on, the, on what the doctor is doing. And B, this, this failure of the emergency public health infrastructure to jump right in and to provide some sort of emergency care. And, you know, it was interesting actually stepping back in the example of Washington state and looking at just generally how the state prepares for things like a pandemic or emergency. And I could just see from official reports that, gosh, nursing homes were completely or almost completely absent from planning. I mean, there was one 90 page report that the state of Washington produced. It had more on um, it had more kind of words devoted to what veterinarians should do in the event of a pandemic than what a nursing home operator should do. And I found that really striking. And uh, so you published the story. Uh, do you get feedback from, uh, from Life Care? Uh, do you get feedback from family involved? Do you get a, uh, yeah, what, what kind of response do you get uh, as a journalist? Yeah. And are you like nervous after you publish something that you've worked um, so many hours on, so many days on that you're probably even have some emotional attachment to? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I was nervous, although the piece was very thoroughly professionally fact-checked and um, reviewed by a lawyer. But of course, you're always worried about um, perspective. I heard a lot from people about the history I told about the nursing home industry. I think that despite what we kind of know about healthcare in America, we tend to think or imagine the elder care sort of different, that it's not subject to the same capitalist market forces, that somehow it must be softer and, and somehow it must be sort of um, you know, a, a different kind of business than, than any other business, because of course it's taking care of vulnerable people. That's, that's unique work. But I think what my article showed was, you know, it's not really true. The nursing home industry is more than a $100 billion industry. Uh, the leaders of the industry are billionaires and they have made their money on nursing homes and on long-term care, and especially through public dollars, Medicare and Medicaid. And I think that story really surprised people. Um, you know, some of the details I got into in the piece are the fact that, you know, though, though this industry has become largely a for-profit private industry, 
there's very little transparency that's required of nursing homes. There's very little they have to disclose to the public. So even as a journalist, it was incredibly hard just to figure out what was happening financially at this single little nursing home. So I think a lot of, a lot of the feedback came, um, came on, on that front. I also think I heard a lot from geriatricians. Um, you know, I think they rightly feel like their work has for a long time been undervalued and underseen even by other in the medical profession. And so they really feel, um, you know, heartbroken at what's happening to nursing homes around the country, but also sort of invigorated by the the new interest in long-term care. Um, and I think maybe hopeful that there will be some momentum to change things. Right. And this was not your first uh, adventure into long-term care uh, reporting. Uh, you're, uh, for the people listening to this, you're a uh, multimedia, multidimensional. Uh, you've reported on stories from Albania to Serbia, uh, you cover human rights issues, uh, the black market for abortion pills, uh, fake news in Idaho. Uh, one of your stories, which I was watching in your highlight in a, you have a video post online, was about uh, uh, you went to Germany for a story tracking down stolen brain tissue stolen uh, from Holocaust victims. Um, so you've reported on a, on a range of things, but one of your issues that you keep, uh, that you you've had several lengthy investigative pieces is long-term care. How does that fit into your, how do, how does reporting on long-term care and nursing homes fit into your uh, broader perspective as a journalist? Yeah. Well, I guess I'm interested in ethics and I'm interested in the way that philosophy and morality intersects with policy. And so medicine is this place where that's happening all the time. Um, I'm especially interested in issues where I feel like they are so complicated that in fact, reasonable people could have very reasonably different opinions. You know, long-term care, I don't think it's not an obviously partisan issue. I've talked to a lot of people, Republicans and Democrats and independents, and and their political affiliation doesn't necessarily help me predict how they feel about long-term care. And that's kind of a space I like to be in as a reporter where people still have sort of nuanced and personal views that haven't been handed to them by, you know, some other affiliation. So I'm definitely interested in the way, you know, not, not in healthcare specifically in the sense that, you know, I don't have a, a medical background and, you know, I don't report on scientific advances, but I am interested in the way that the provision of care interacts with, society and, and the way that people experience it. So, um, so yeah, I've reported on, on things like the definition of death and brain death and how that can be contested by, by family members and doctors. So these sorts of issues where maybe politics and society and personal experience and morality collide. Do you take, when you're reporting on, uh, on nursing homes, are there, um, are there skills, are there, um, I guess, experiences based on your international uh, reporting or based on uh, some of the issues that translate into the nursing home setting? Yeah, I think I, you know, I tend to have like a really slow, long winding interview style. Um, I don't tend to, you know, I, I tend to talk to people many times and to have our conversations go in a lot of directions. And I think that's really useful when reporting on something like this that is often, you know, 
in this case, a lot of the family members were still experiencing a lot of grief and a lot of trauma, and it was useful to just give interviews space and just have people bring up what they thought was important to them. Specifically for this piece, I've reported on dementia in the past, and that was really useful. It was really important to me that I at least tried to the extent that, you know, my imagination could be stretched that far, at least try to tell the Kirkland story from the perspective of people who lived in the nursing home who were not fully cognizant of what was going on, people who had various degrees of dementia. So I sort of peppered the piece with um, little bits. And I think, you know, prior experience on dementia really helped me to do that. I was able to kind of understand what to ask family members about that experience. So for instance, you know, I think technology is being held up as this kind of panacea, like we'll just get iPads into these nursing homes and they'll be able to talk to their family members and everything will be okay. Well, in fact, it's not often that helpful for families who have a loved one with dementia. And in fact, it can be harmful. So I spoke to someone at Life Care and she talked about FaceTiming with her mother-in-law who was dementia and having her mother-in-law just get extremely upset. She was confused by the technology. She sort of tried to, thought she could leave the nursing home through the iPad and was heartbroken when she couldn't. And so I think, you know, focusing on experiences like that was um, really beneficial. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. So again, we're an advocacy group and one of our challenges is finding out what's going on. Um, and it's rare that you hear from directly from residents. Uh, you you kind of hear second, second uh, degree or you don't hear it straight from the source. And sometimes it's well-intentioned people that are maybe not communicating what actually happened. Sometimes it's, there's bad actors, but uh, regardless, the outcome is the same as you're not getting that direct perspective. So I'm, gl I'm so glad you are, uh, A, bringing it up and B, sharing stories that bring their voices uh, to life. Um, so you have a book coming out. It's mm -hmm. in winter 2021 uh, we're march, recording this march. oh march uh, is march technically winter i don't know oh we're recording this on october 7th so it's soon what is your book uh what's it called when's it coming out uh and what would you like people to know about this book yeah the book is called the inevitable dispatches on the right to die it's being published by St. Martin's Press and it's available for pre-order on Amazon and Bookshop and all sorts of other places. Um, it is a very narrative, journalistic examination of the right to die and assisted death and the idea of irrational suicide. Um, so I start the book with medical physician assisted death in the United States and I look at um, the laws that have been passed, and um, I look at certain places where people are assisting uh, or, or receiving medically assisted death. And then I expand from there and I look at all the different activities going on across the United States and around the world that really fall beyond the margins of the law and organized medicine. So I look at groups that uh, work to help people who are sick. Um, end their lives. I look at the stories of individuals who kind of make plans on their own. So I'm 
really telling the stories of people who decide to control and choreograph their final hours for a variety of reasons. So the book is about the right to die, but but I think really it's, I'm, I'm trying to look more broadly at what it means to have a dignified death, to have a humane death, um, to have a, a bearable death. And so, um, yeah, I, I hope this, this book reaches people who, um, you know, aren't necessarily planning to look for physician assistance, but who are um, interested in and concerned by the way that modern death takes place in this country. Mm-hmm. And uh, I believe there's an excerpt or uh, you, you wrote a story, Her, Her Time. Uh, is, is it a straight, is it an excerpt from the book or is it? Yeah, it's, um, it's like a condensed version of a chapter. Yeah, in California Sunday, I published a piece called Her Time. It's the story of a woman named Deborah Cousid who lived in Oregon on the coast and ended up taking her life after being diagnosed with early onset dementia. And I interviewed Deborah over the course of several months as she was planning um, her death. And the piece really tells the story of this, this remarkable woman, but also looks at a lot of issues around dementia care. Um, and, and so, yeah, that's available on California Sunday's website. We'll link to it. Uh, one of the thing, one of the, one of my takeaways or something that struck me reading that was Deborah in the story uh, spoke about nursing homes and spoke about uh, poorly uh, and fearfully about about the nursing home experience as uh, and including that in her thought process about what's ahead. Uh, does your does this book? Uh, does it get into the nursing home setting uh, or are there other instances like, like that? Mm, It doesn't get too much into nursing homes, except that, I mean, something I heard over and over in my reporting is some variation of, I would rather be dead than live in a nursing home or I will kill myself before I end up in a nursing home. Or I promised my father that if it looked like he was going to end up in a nursing home, I would help him end his life. And that's a really shocking thing to hear, given that, you know, at any given moment, what is it, 1.4 million Americans are living in a nursing home? I mean, I think somehow life in a nursing home is really, you know, it's a, it's a potentially expected part of life for a lot of people. And yet it's something that so many people dread to the point that they would rather be dead than experience it. Like if anything, those kinds of statements really get across to me the need for some other way. Um, How can it be that there's 1.4 million people living in a way that they don't necessarily want to live? And, and this book, so it comes out uh, when in March, what day in March? March 3rd. Okay. You can pre-order it now, <laughs> and uh, and also on my website you could sign up for updates. Yes, and and please pre-order because um, that uh, is something with the algorithms. It helps boost it up. It ha- helps make Katie happy, which will will make me happy. Um, and I think it'll be a worthwhile read. Uh, I've pre-ordered it, and I'm really um, excited to uh, to to read your work. If it's anything like your Cal Sunday piece and the other um, the other 
articles and videos uh, that you have published in your in your career. Thank you. Yeah, and so we close uh, we close our interviews by asking for recommendations from our guests, and these are going to be two recommendations. One is related to uh, is a book a uh, article, a TV show, uh, anything related to long-term care. And the second is just any piece of, uh, any non-long-term care uh, content. So let's first hear your LTC related, related yeah. item. Okay. Um, well, long-term care related, I might, I'm, I'm sure people have recommended this before, but the book Elderhood by Dr. Louise Aronson, I found to be extremely illuminating and is maybe a good introduction for readers who just want to know more about geriatrics and how the field is developed and the current state of play. We know that there are, there's already an enormous shortage of geriatricians and it's already going to grow. And I think Dr. Aronson really um, gets into the history with an enormous amount of empathy and, and expertise. So I really liked that. And then as my throwaway, I think I'll recommend a book that I read at the start of quarantine that I absolutely loved, which is The Overstory by Richard Powers, which is a huge, enormous novel that uh, is kind of about environmentalism and the future of the planet, but in a way that doesn't feel, you know, pedantic and kind of political and instead is just this huge expansive piece of fiction that I really, really loved and and that touches actually on on aging and, and death in a way that's pretty interesting and might be to your readers. Yeah. Listen. As a as a, a journalist, do you find yourself reading more fiction um, or nonfiction or or uh, do you get in like a fiction mo uh, a fiction mm -hmm. mood or a nonfiction mood? How does that work? I think sometimes I I think I at the beginning of the pandemic I was not reading a lot of fiction because I felt like, oh, there are all these important things going on and I need to know about them. But now, you know, I think I'm trying to connect with things that aren't necessarily COVID related. And it's nice um, at least to, to focus on some other aspects of the human experience that aren't this pandemic for at least a few hours. Mm -hmm. Great, I think that's good advice. And we're gonna end it at that. Katie, thanks, thanks so much again. And uh, good luck on your book launch. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. For links to the articles mentioned in the interview, be sure to check out our show page at nursinghome411.org slash podcast. Again, that's nursinghome411.org slash podcast. You can also download our episodes on iTunes and Spotify. Thanks for listening and until next time.